welcome to the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast by Fantastic Geek. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. I am Pete, and you would not like me when I am angry. <laughs> Just want to remind you that today's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast is brought to you by the lovely Pingo Doce Soda. All the guarana anyone afflicted with gamma radiation sickness could ever want. And Pete, that is such an appropriate sponsor. Two weeks in a row, really, since, uh, why don't you take us through the debriefing, what is on our, uh, on our agenda for today? What are we talking about? Well, Matt, being uh, just about a month out now from the premiere of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC, we are continuing our look through the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies in preparation for the premiere of this much ballyhooed series that we will podcast. And today we're taking a look at the 2008 The Incredible Hulk. This, of course, a, a movie that opened uh, the third week in June. Uh, so that was a scant six weeks after, after Iron Man came out. And uh, Pete, where would you like to begin in this movie that uh, I think I think well I think we should mention we both just got done watching it, and uh, I think that both of our opinions of the movie shifted in one direction or another uh, with this post Avengers post Phase One rewatch that we had. So uh, where would you like to begin? Now you had seen this in the theater. Yeah, I saw it in theaters. I want to say maybe even opening weekend, if not maybe second week. Okay. Um, it, it was, well, I guess why don't we start there? It was not uh, to Marvel's benefit, I think, to have had this movie come out so close after Iron Man, a movie that was met with such acclaim and continues to have such acclaim. Um, I think as we get into the podcast, we'll discuss a number of reasons why. I, I don't think it's necessarily an inferior uh, effort. I don't even think it's necessarily an inferior product, but it definitely is a much different flavor than Iron Man, and I think that is perhaps what hurt its uh, its perception or its uh, reputation, that sort of thing. Absolutely, and you know, coming on the heels of the Ang Lee Hulk from two thousand three, um, I really feel the question to look at early on is: is this a reboot? Or a continuation. You know, you've got that five-year difference. There's a line in The Incredible Hulk in this film where, you know, General Ross says, he made it five years. And then you had done a little research as we were watching in terms of what one executive called this. Yes, one of the executive producers, Gail Ann Hurd, uh, who I believe is on Twitter as Gunner Gale. Uh, she a uh, a longtime producer in the Hollywood. Uh, she called it a requel, kind of part reboot, part sequel. And I think, even though I think we can all agree that the Ang Lee Hulk is awful and misses the mark in a bunch of ways, uh, we all saw it. We all saw it recently, too, you know, five years previous to when this movie came out. So I think that they made the right choice, um, particularly in that opening scene to kind of have something that's evocative of a past story, uh, and we can get into how, how they had initially intended it to be a, a, a different opening and whatnot, but the movie as it is now, the final product, you open with kind of feeling almost like the, almost like television credits or almost kind of like a previously on, um, and it's, it's definitely, um, it links up well to your vague memory of the Ang Lee Hulk. I believe the Ang Lee Hulk ends somewhere in South America, and here this picks up somewhere in South America. The somewhere is Brazil. So it's kind of like it feels familiar despite the fact that, hey, Mr. Banner looks different, which, of course, it would not be the last time that Bruce Banner looked different in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Absolutely. And, you know, you seize upon my sentiment perfectly, you know, in that we have that end of Hulk somewhere in South America. We're going to begin here in Brazil. So we're going to acknowledge, but we're not going to do the origin thing, but we're going to do the origin thing differently in the credits. And even, you know, coming back to 
honoring more of the original TV show than I feel the Yang Lee one did. You know, we have the classic sad music when he's homeless and destitute in Mexico. We have um, the actor who played uh, Banner on the TV show pictured quickly, you know, in a clip uh, in Brazil when he's watching TV. Uh, you know, Lou Ferrigno shows up. Um, Lou Ferrigno also does the five or so words of actual Hulk dialogue. Hulk smash, and I think there's a Betty, and I think there's maybe a get away from me. Okay. That might be the extent of it, but... So we, we get enough of what we essentially need to out of the, I, I hesitate to say original film, let's just say that other film. Um, and then, you know, we, we move it on to this one without needing to go, here's Dr. Banner, here's what he's doing, here's an accident. Oh no, what is happening? And we pick up, I think, fairly effectively, which what is done several times, beginning and ending the movie with the days without incident counter. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think it works there. Here, here's a thought I had while we're watching this, and given how prescient this is in the news, the entertainment news, I should say right now, given some of the the controversy about uh, particularly what's going on in Syria, and people are paying attention to this. <laughs> You know, the the Ben Affleck uh, announcement that he will play Batman in the Superman versus Batman film or whatever we're calling that, okay? But to the Marvel Universe, this film is essentially the Superman versus Batman there. So funny to look back at it with this retrospect. Yeah, and, and, and it's a movie that um, I think it's it's unfair to the movie that should exist in a, in a vacuum. It's unfair that it, it was born, uh, or, or at least, you know, it, it arrived born on our doorstep. It arrived opening night in, in June uh, in the shadow of Iron Man, and then you watch it now, and it's kind of in the shadow of all the movies that have come after it. Um, most better, one worse. Um, and even, even the casting of Ed Norton that... I know was done so conscientiously for certain, uh, for what he did bring to the table as an actor. Um, you then just, even just his body type doesn't quite fit in retrospect because right. we like the fact that Mark, Mark Ruffalo has more of a square jawline. And I know they were going for Ed Norton because he's a little bit more kind of gaunt looking, but it, it's just, it, it, it's a movie that exists in kind of many, uh, in many times. Well, how about Norton as a choice here, you know, compared to uh, Eric Banya, um, you know, the guy everybody thinks of Hulk now um, with the Avengers in Mark Ruffalo. Um, talk a little bit about the banner s selection here. Well, I'd like to split your statement or your question into two parts. First, I'll talk about the casting of Ed Norton, period, and then in relation to the others. I think the casting of Ed Norton for this movie, for the movie that they wanted to make, somebody who is deeply pained, somebody who is um, does not look like the Hulk in Bruce Banner form, uh, or, you know, as Bruce Banner does not look like the Hulk, unlike, say, you know, a, a Superman type where you say, oh, that Clark Kent, boy, he's been working out lately. Um, they got the guy they wanted. He's somebody who is incredibly effective at coming across as pained, coming across as world-weary, world emphasis on the weary, not, uh, not kind of the way I would say, you know, Ruffalo comes off as a little bit more world-experienced or kind of weight of the world, but he can do it. This is somebody who is um, barely hanging on and, and not doing a great job at hanging on, and I mean that as a credit to Norton as an actor, um, somebody who's who's overwhelmed by the situation going on around him, they wanted all of that. They got that from Ed Norton. Uh, compared to Eric Bana, I'll admit it's been a while since I've seen the Bana film, but um, Ed Norton is it gives a much better performance than I remember Bana did. But now the big question is, in comparison to Ruffalo, Ruffalo's delivery, which may also be a delivery of a more mature banner, a more experienced banner, but Ruffalo's delivery is that of somebody who is, you know, as I said, he's somebody who, 
kind of feels like he's capable of handling some of these things thrown at him. Mm-hmm. He's a little, he's somebody who's a little bit more uh, experienced in living at the edge of the grid, as we see uh, Banner in Avengers. You know, he's kind of in the the slums of India, but it's not kind of out in the boonies because he can't possibly trust himself, or it's not kind of in right. in the lowest level of poverty that we see in in Brazil. He's kind of presumably making a couple bucks being an actual doctor, not kind of trying to keep himself hidden off from the world. So, I, again, I want to stress, I think we all love Mark Ruffalo as the Hulk best, but some of that some of that Hulk that Ruffalo plays, some of it is Ruffalo, some of it is the character as he evolved um, through the experience of the subsequent movies, even though the Hulk wasn't in them. Um... And by comparison, Norton is now a step down, even though they got the guy they wanted for the type of movie they wanted in Norton. How did you like Ed Norton versus the other two guys? Well, I mean, Banna plays it with just so much angst. Um, I think that Norton was the middle ground, clearly the best actor of the three, and you had made a point while we were watching it, you know, is he... The, the best actor at the time that they cast the role that Marvel ever went with. Or not even necessarily the, big, the, the best actor, although I would agree with that. Was he the biggest star at the time? You think of coming off Fight Club, coming off uh, American History X, versus Robert Downey Jr., who we need to remind ourselves, before Iron Man, it was like, oh, he did Chaplin in the early 90s, and some romantic comedies, and you know he wasn't... You wouldn't call him um, a critical or a crowd draw. Same thing with, you know, hey, who are they getting to play Thor? It's Papa Kirk. Who are they getting to play Captain America? It's Johnny Storm from that movie that was out forever ago, uh, of which he was good, but maybe like the fourth most interesting person on the team. Um, and also an Avenger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When, uh, yeah, one day when the Fantastic Four writes come home to Marvel Studios, that'll be an interesting moment where... Where uh, Captain America can look at the new Johnny Storm and go, "Kid, I thought you'd be more handsome," or something <laughs> like that. Um, you know, this film—it's a downer. While the other, yeah. while the other um, Hulk movie is, you know, shrouded in angst through the performance of Eric Banya, there is a decided lack of humor in this film when compared to the other Marvel Cinematic Universe films. I want to, again, separate. There's not much humor, as I recall, in the Ang Lee Hulk, okay? But it's an issue of tone. I mean, yeah, we get a couple things. We get the requisite Stan Lee cameo, and, you know, he drinks the soda and he drops it, okay? Maybe the funniest moment in the movie. Yeah, which we, we were wondering aloud as we watched later on with Stan Lee's, with it, uh, a Y pizza restaurante later on, and and you know the old uh, white haired man was that originally the slot for the Stan Space <laughs> Lee cameo. You know, there's the "Don't make me hungry" line early on. It's also quite good. There's a Norton wink in the credits in kind of the origin uh, thing there. But overall, nowhere near anywhere of the humor that is present in the other films. And maybe that's something that it took this movie for them to find out, that you know, each character has their limitations, and if you're going to go, well, Hulk is rage, and then let's backtrack there, Bruce Banner can't control him, uh, so we're really going to tie into the, the palette of the TV series, the TV series in terms of uh, he is a man kind of on the run, a man who can't make personal connections because of the nature of this monster inside him. Um, what can you do to kind of play counter to that? Well, the later movies, you still see that he's somebody who is dealing with rage. Um, but there's those, you know, humorous moments where Hulk is just going crazy and and we like the character all the more for it here they stick to the to those sadder tones. I don't want to call it one note because it's not, but it definitely is. It's sorrow and grief and regret 
and and desolation and loneliness, that's where this movie is living, which by itself is an interesting place. But then you say, oh, there's the living it up Tony Stark, and there's the stately prince of, of Asgard, and there's the, you know, all humble but confident Captain America. And by comparison, it's like, and here's a guy who doesn't want to use his superpowers. Right. Because they're not super, because actually, it's actually not a superpower, it's a super, a, a super chain around his neck. Marvel didn't get the character yet here. I think we can all agree that they had it down cold in the Avengers, and that is really what helps on top of everything else to make that movie what it is, um, to the point where now they feel they can, going forward at some point, try another Hulk movie out. You know, there's talk of Planet Hulk or whatever later on. But I think the result of everything we're talking about with The Incredible Hulk is what makes it an okay watch. It's not captivating by any stretch of the imagination. You know, there's three set pieces between the chase in Brazil when they, you know, pin him down. There's the university battle. And then there's Harlem. Um... But it is what it is. Yeah. And I think, too, there's a little bit, you know, as you mentioned with those three set pieces, uh, the, the risk that you run with, with a Hulk movie is that, you know, ultimately, for the Hulk to be doing his thing, he's, there's a lot of smashing and throwing and, and whatnot. You know, there's not, there's not kind of the flying that you might get with... Uh, with uh, Thor or Iron Man, there's not kind of there's not even the um, you know heart on his sleeve nature of Captain America, where maybe his powers are a bit more muted, but there's still kind of that he can do witty banter, he can make you you know full really pull feel pulled into the situation. I feel like the risk in a Hulk movie is that every Hulk fight is just going to end up being essentially a toddler tantrum, but you replace the toy cars with real cars. Um, now, I did not feel that way in Avengers, maybe in part because every Hulk smash scene also had witty banter by other people, uh, and in the case of Hulk and Loki, Hulk himself, but it had other people and other palettes to be playing off of, so the Hulk would be more than, than one note, whereas here it's just kind of like, each Hulk out is essentially him just smashing stuff. Which, again, is fine by itself, but then in comparison to the nuance of a Tony Stark and previous to this, and then the movies to come, it's like another thing where it gets points off, not for its own work, but for the work of the group. I agree. And, you know, let's talk about the, the special effects there within the hulking out for a minute. And you had some very budget-friendly uh, handling in terms of the special effects you know, the first time he turns into the Hulk, uh, you know, much of it is done, uh, you know, through implication. We have the change on night vision, which is green to begin with. Okay. And green. There's, there's a lot of darkness. Okay. And then when we finally get full on Hulk scenes, it's this overly muscled Hulk, which does not match the current Hulk that we have. Uh, also different from the previous Hulk. Um, so yet again sets up this uh, different idea of the character. Yeah, I know I have this factoid bumping around in my head that for the Ang Lee Hulk, they made the decision to make his muscles, um, essentially to make him have less body fat than than like would be healthy. So it was like super, super, super muscle, which led to kind of a little bit less of the you know, the bodybuilder form, the whole, you know, stereotypical bodybuilder with the powder and the, you know, drinking the raw eggs and all that. With this, there was a little bit more muscle tone to it, but I think it was still like crazy muscles. And then finally they get to the Ruffalo one and they're like, let's make him look like Lou Ferrigno, but 11 feet tall. You know, let's make him look like the very, the very pinnacle of muscle man and not kind of he can he can act like a freak. He can speak like a freak. Let's make him. Be, we just sit and go. Them's his big muscles. That's why he's able to rip a car in half and use it as uh, as uh, uh, boxing gloves. Well, I mean, thank God they didn't use some of the characterization from the 
the first Hulk film with the idea that I can run and then jump uh, a mile or five at a time, anything like that. Um, you know, when some of that idea works in the Avengers, when he falls out of the helicarrier and then, you know, surviving some of the things that he survives. Um, but definitely, uh, you know, as far as special effects go, I, I think there are some missteps. Yeah, and I mean, they are effects that just genuinely were not great in 2008. I think, you know, at that point we would have been, you know, uh, let's see, 2008, we would have been five or six years after a lot of the Gollum work for Lord of the Rings, which itself was much smaller scale, um, you know, both literally in terms of characters' physique and also kind of not, you know, Gollum not needing to carry, um, to carry the, the, the story the way the Hulk needs to. But there's just, it's, I don't, again, it's one of these things, and I hate to keep repeating myself, but yeah, the effects were not great for 2008, but were they on par with some of the other movies that were out then? I mean, maybe yes, maybe no. They're not as good as Davy Jones, which certainly would have been concurrent. And I think the effects were done by ILM for this movie. So, you know, were they as good as Transformers? Not really. Does Transformers help by the fact that we actually don't know what a car robot looks like, but we know what a big person looks like, a big person painted green? You know, um, so it's just kind of... The, and then we have, of course, the better technology four years later with Avengers. And on top of it, we have Mark Ruffalo who has a little bit more of a square face, which fits the Hulk face better than Norton who just does it. You kind of lose some of the Norton-ness in, in the CG Hulk for this. Anyhow, after that lengthy bit there, Pete, I see that you have once again, your, your leather bound, uh, series of events. What is next? Well, we're going to take a look inside our dossier here on the bad guys, the threat, the new characters, essentially, in this portion of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So first up, and in, in many respects, kind of the same template as uh, the first Iron Man film, we get a two-tier uh, character approach here. We have General Ross, carried over from... The original, uh, the first Hulk movie, um, there he's played by the guy who's in Roadhouse, Sam, Sam Elliott. Okay, right, yes, okay. yes, yes. And here we go with... Uh, William Hurt, who I feel like he nailed, with that, with that mustache the way it is, with his eyebrows, I don't know if those were his natural eyebrows or if they added a little extra volume to them or something... But he just looks like he walked off of a comic book. It's perfect. He he looks like he just has that mustachioed comic book look down perfectly. And yeah, you're right. For the first half of the movie, he is definitely the bad guy. He's the one trying to capture our hero, threatening our hero, the one who's putting uh, you know God and country above his daughter, uh, particularly when you get to the the university stuff. And uh, I thought that his performance. Was, was quite good. I think that they, they hired a, a very solid actor and got a very, very solid performance. It is. It's solid. Um, I kind of prefer the, the Sam Elliott. Uh, I thought his was a better General Ross. Um, but again, we're delving into more of the backstory in that, uh, that other film rather than what we get here. Um, and then, of course, we get our actual bad guy, who we see for quite a bit of the film, but he doesn't become the bad guy proper until the final act. But Emil Blonsky, who is, from the moment we meet him, described as Russian, but he's a Royal Marine, and uh, very one-note. Because Matt, we're smacked upside the head several times with a green fist to the point where we're told... This man is a fighter. He's a fighter, Matt. And you know, all that fighting, it takes a toll. To the point where General Ross thinks, Well, you're 45, aren't you, Blonsky? No, sir. I'm 39. <laughs> but if I could be in the body of a 29-year-old, 
But wait, your daughter's already taken. Oh, hang on a second. We <laughs> back up. Okay. Really, the 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 characterization is beyond putrid. It is, and I feel like um, Tim Roth can do more. However, I think Tim Roth is his his wheelhouse is definitely being um, glaring and kind of. A day's worth of stubble and kind of like him against the world and kind of like, you know, angry underneath, but still kind of professional and still kind of like, you know, a you-know-what eating grin. So I think they got a good actor and got a fair performance out of him. Um, and yeah, as you say, kind of very one note and very kind of like, I don't know. It's, it, it's definitely... He's a fighter, man. He just wants to fight. To the point where, you know, he has uh, Dr. Sanders there, Mr. Blue, um, you know, hook him up with the, the Hulk serum at the end. And so he can lay waste to Harlem and maybe the Incredible Hulk as well. Um, you know, it's all about fighting. He becomes this abomination, you know, with a weirdo spine and strange things coming off the backs of his knees. And he can speak before the Hulk speaks and the whole thing there. But it just, it never nails it. Well, and I mean, to, to talk about the character design of Abomination for a second, as somebody who is a, uh, a big Superman fan, I thought that that bone stuff was very reminiscent of Doomsday. And it kind of was like, I mean, do what you need to do to design your character. It's not like there's some sort of, you know, sacred way to do it. But the flip side is, I don't know, as a comic book guy, I just kind of felt like here you're seeing kind of, you know, Doomsday with a British accent who can, who can, as you say, speak, whereas the Hulk cannot. Um, so that was kind of weird. And then, I don't know, just, it's, it seems, it, it seems like the whole character and perhaps even the casting of Tim Roth, is an exercise in laziness. He's a character whose origins are Russian, you know, and fine. Originally it was like a KGB guy, so you kind of have U.S. versus Russia. All right, I get that. But now he's Russian. You say, oh, but he's British, as, as you pointed out, which does what? It lets Tim Roth just be British? Like, couldn't he have remained Russian? And, I, I you, you know what I mean? Like, they kind of... It's, it's kind of this lazy extra story loop to be like, and now Tim Roth can use his normal accent for the whole movie. And done. Same thing with, you know, he's just that direct go-getter. And of course he's, want, he's willing to bend the rules and take a little shot of the super soldier serum that Ross offers him, and then to take some of the Hulk serum that he takes from Sanders. Um, and more on Sanders later on, believe you me. But it, it, it's... It's an oddly direct character and story and performance, and the whole thing is just kind of very on a straight line. Then it brings us really to the end, and you know, what is not done, what is not an after credit sequence, I had remembered it coming after the credits, which you know, Marvel is now known for. They had done uh, after. Iron Man credits, you know, we get the S.H.I.E.L.D. idea for the first time, and Nick Fury, and everything there. And here, at the end, you know, after Abomination uh, is defeated, and, you know, we both pointed out, the monster is not killed, it's still moving at the, at the end, so it's still out there, technically. But, um, we're back with General Ross, you know, he's He's reloading cocktails there and in strides Iron Man and we get the full-on mention of the Super Soldier program, which we're going to come back to in a little bit. Um, you said uh, it, it wound up striking you as a more effective ending than uh, you remember. Yeah, well, let me, let me talk about the, the memory before the, the rewatch. Um, there's so much that's perfect about Iron Man and then six weeks later... You know, to see this movie, which is is imperfect by comparison, um, I, I yeah, the, this final scene, I believe it was originally, I believe it was originally meant to be an after credit thing, 
but I think that given the hype around Iron Man, they wanted to really make it clear to people, hey, we do have a big plan. I think they got a little, they kind of jumped the gun a little bit. Plus, they wanted to then use Robert Downey Jr. in promotional stuff for Hulk. Both of which I understand. They want to, they want to, they want to get what we now have, which is I go to Marvel movies. I don't know about Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, guess what? I heard that it. I heard that that's uh, Thanos at the end of Avengers. That's going to tie into Guardians of the Galaxy. Great. I've now been teased. I'm looking forward to going it, going to it, even though I have no history with the characters before time. They wanted to get that feeling, but they wanted it now, now, now. Right. So. Fine, they put it at the end. I mean, it feels tacked on. I would have preferred... Look, if they put it at the end of the movie, if they put it after the credits, most people still would have seen it because word would have gotten out that you, you hang around. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to t They wanted to say, look, we have a big universe, and look, it's Iron Man, he's in this movie, and, and look, we really have a great plan, it's going to be fantastic, one day it's going to be an Avengers movie. And there's just a little bit too much jumping up and down. I had two slices of cake at the birthday party enthusiasm. Where it just could have been played a little bit, a little bit cooler, but say la vie. Um, that was the original memory. You watch it now, and you see a pretty good Hulk movie, and then to have to have uh, Tony Stark come in and say, "Hey, so there's this Hulk thing, and we're putting a team together, and you know." Behind the scenes, general, you know, we we've been talking and nobody nobody mentioned that at all. Um, it it gives it speaks to the the breadth of the universe as we understand it now, whereas then it was just kind of like I don't know, it felt like an unearned after credits scene before the credits ended. So that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> well, then let's uh, let's open up. Some level seven uh, theories, if we could here. Let's really analyze this overall film and where it falls in the Marvel Universe. First thing I'm going to come out and uh, get at is how we're laying the groundwork for Captain America. Um, you know, mentioned before, uh, Iron Man, Tony Stark bringing up the whole super soldier program. It's teased quite a bit throughout the film. Oh, this was tried in the 1940s, blah, 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 blah. You know, why else can, uh, you know, uh, Emil Blonsky go from, you know, I just hit a tree with my face <laughs> to taking the bandages off, you know, within the next 24 hours. And all right, I'm, I'm ready to go again. Let's, yeah. let's get cracking. Um, so... This was done with that in mind, and interesting, as we were watching, uh, you unearthed the fact there was not only an alternate opening, which, you know, we'll point out for those listening, we watched the uh, Blu-ray, the alternate opening sequence is on that, but there was 70 minutes of footage cut from this film. We looked through deleted scenes, we did not watch any. There are quite a few deleted scenes yeah, on more the than you normally would see. Yes. Um, well, concerning the alternate opening, it was, um, it was an opening where it's in the, the snowy lands and there's a truck and a lot of, you know, helicopter shots showing more and more desolation and unknown guy gets dropped off by the truck and walks, you know, deeper and deeper into desolation and wilderness. And you see that it's Ed Norton and he, uh, you know, takes off his hat and his snow goggles so you can see that it's Ed Norton and he takes out a gun I was actually thinking he was going to put the gun in his mouth because there's the the reference in the um, you so know, the big guy could spit it out. That exactly. Yeah. Um, they didn't. He did not put the gun in his mouth. He ends up hulking out before he, you know, while he's still holding the gun in the palm of his hand, which didn't work for me at all. Yeah, I mean, I understand. I'm going to kill myself so I become the Hulk. You, you understand? I don't get that fight or well, flight. Well, yeah, I, I I think if you're so um, if you've, uh, I mean, not to turn, not to, not, not to take the, the energy way down here, but I think if you've, if you've made the decision, which is, uh, against innate human programming, you've made the decision to take your own life, you've decided that it is a common logical thing to do, whether it is or not, and that's a, that's a whole separate discussion. I would, 
I kind of have a hard time believing that there he is, gun in hand. He must be feeling negative, de depressive feelings, which would depress the the reactions of the body. Um, also, apparently, this is a you know he feels this is a logical decision to take his life. I don't know why all of a sudden now your heart's going to spike up to two hundred. Not that I mean to be fair, it is definitely a climactic moment uh, for oneself, I would imagine, but it does seem out of the blue, unlike. Guy who keeps punching me in the face. No, 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 I'm angry. Or, oh, they've fired the gas canisters. I'm starting to panic. There's my fight or flight testosterone. Rah. Um, but sure enough, he hulks out and he starts smashing. And we had a bit well, of... Well, no, the glacier breaks. I thought that was because he of his... I think it couldn't handle the weight and it kind of caves in. That's what I took that to be. That's possible, too. And as a total side note, and this is probably officially unfair territory to get into this mass shifting um how is it that ed norton at 180 how does he become four or five hundred pounds i don't want to quibble too much because it's also like iron man exists in a world that's supposedly like ours i don't think we have the tech to do that you know just as a side note that that had crossed into my mind especially when uh, I know in the Transformer movies, they made a point to say, no mass shifting. You need to be able, ILM, you need to be able to build a digital model of the truck in truck form and a digital model in Optimus Prime form that have the exact same parts that just shift around. Anyhow, um, there is supposedly or officially, but it's not too clear, as the glacier falls and then ice comes towards us, there's what I what was meant to be kind of the, the fuzzy body of, uh, of Captain America that then gets unearthed. I kind of saw it. You kind of didn't. I, mean, I, I think, think we, you saw it because you wanted to see it. I was going to say that. It's one of those things where if I hadn't pointed it out, yeah, would you have, you know, you saw a blob, I saw a body-shaped blob. I think their intention was for it to be Captain America, but it's, so darn obscure. Unlike, say, there's the Captain America shield in Tony Stark's work garage area, workroom, um, in Iron Man 1. Pete, you mentioned before the abandoned 70 minutes. Here's what my, my crackerjack research on the Wikipedia revealed. Yes, there was 70 minutes of flashback, uh, 70 minutes of other footage. The intention was never to use all of it. So it's not that there's some sort of extended cut out there, which is preferred. Um, I, the plan originally was to do flashbacks throughout the movie, um, and they, apparently they did a test screening and it did not go well at all, or people didn't like that, so they took, they took much of that and just, um, put it into the opening montage. I think much to the, to the improvement of the movie, it's a great opening montage as we discussed earlier, um, so that's where a lot of that went to, in terms of. I'm not saying a great amount of the 70 minutes, but certainly some of that story was compacted greatly into that montage. Right. And really kind of to shift gears from all of that, and, you know, Norton had uh, gotten a, um, a a credit or uh, not gotten a credit with right. the, uh, the Writers Guild of America. What happened there? Norton did a lot of rewriting. Uh, everybody can agree with that, that he did a ton of rewriting. He was rewriting every day. He was a writer actor on this movie. The Writers Guild determined that, uh, I don't know their specific language, but basically somebody else had written the basic story, the basic characters, the basic character interactions, and Norton did not fundamentally change that. He might have changed the house on top of the foundation, but the foundation was not his. Therefore, he did not receive any uh, any credit. Um, so he definitely had a huge hand in that. He was close to the director. Uh, he kind of was an actor plus in this movie, which uh, I don't know if you want to talk about it now or later, but when you look to him being replaced, I think Marvel likes everybody in a box that they understand that they can pay accordingly or pay a little less when they're when they don't when they can and to have somebody who or control yeah control and when you have somebody who's a vocal writer director um i think to them it was like whoa we don't want anybody who's that important to the movie you know well, well so yeah 
Mr. Blue and Mr. Green, okay, it becomes a construction plot device early in the film. They're communicating on a closed network. Uh, later on, they get mentioned, they add to the, uh, the S.H.I.E.L.D. database, so the idea of, of S.H.I.E.L.D., which apparently Norton had toned down, yeah, uh, yeah. was a greater presence in this film at one point, comes across. But we were watching a lot of the actual on-screen interplay between Mr. Blue, this Dr. Sanders, and Mr. Green, you know, the Incredible Hulk, and uh, that entire thing just came across as, well, really two things. First is a metaphor for, for performance enhancement. And second, Matt, I'll let you delicately touch upon the other. <laughs> what interesting wordplay you have. I think that one, even though I'm sure we're, 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 you, the listener, might get a little chuckle here, and I don't know that we'll be able to get through this uh, particular part of the discussion without... Uh, a laugh here or there. I think that you can make a genuine, academic, emotionless, humorless argument that uh, that Mr. Blue is uh, perhaps being portrayed either by the actor or the writing or whatever, but the character himself may in fact be a homosexual. There's, he's definitely is um, is much interested with uh, the the physique. Of uh, of the Hulk as as uh, Ban is starting to Hulk out, kind of to distraction. Um, now I want to say this is not, of course, you know, to be distracted by the the gender to which you are attracted is not, of course, a uh, an exclusively homosexual thing. But it's just kind of different than than other people in the movie where he's just kind of like, wow, we look at that. Uh, there's a couple of bits of line that he uh, a couple of lines that he says to Blonsky. Um, it's beautiful. Uh, it's beautiful. It's amazing. You know where it's godlike. <laughs> you know, you, you, which you can have a bit of fun with. Um, he definitely was it's quite a bit of work with blood. <laughs> yes, and, and antidotes. <laughs> I, I definitely think, though, go back and watch the movie, listeners. There's just a little something in that performance where I, I think it, you can interpret it. Less for the lines, less for double entendre than just the way Tim Blake Nelson plays him. There's just a little bit of a little bit of that, I think, in uh, in the character. And then there's the idea, which to this point has gone unfulfilled. He gets some of the blood in an open wound, and his head starts to throb. He starts to mutate. <laughs> Uh, that, of course, setting up uh, The Incredible Hulk 2, where he would have been the leader, uh, which, of course, a movie that did not did not happen. So points to Marvel for, at the very least, giving a little nod to, like, if you're a big Hulk fan, you're going to be like, oh, hey, his, head, his head's starting to get big there, like the leader, and he's been exposed to, like, gamma blood, and the leader was exposed to gamma radiation. Oh, man, this, this really is a full-fledged universe, even if you don't return to it. However, with the intention of returning to it, an intention that they never followed up on, um, it's all the better for them setting up the sequel and the previous one and all of that. Um, Pete, there was something, though, oh, you had mentioned, and this is probably a bit more humorous, you had mentioned, can the movie be a metaphor for, uh, for ED, for erectile dysfunction? No, I said performance enhancement. You're, uh, listen, uh, don't bring your richer jokes uh, into here and, and attempt to make them mine. Well, I, I think that you can make a case that, that the Hulk is, um, is the certain urges, the Bruce Banner, the Hulk can be a metaphor for urges that Mr. Banner is feeling and he doesn't know how to control it. And at a certain point, he actually then is not able to conjure that up and finds out to his regret that, uh, that, that, uh, he's lost that, that carnal version of himself, only to rediscover it uh, at the end. With the help of Mr. Blue, Pill? Uh, I think it's all there, but why don't you tell us from the... Uh, you're the sports guy. Uh, tell us how this is about PEDs, performance-enhancing drugs. Matt, are you trying to assert that it would in some way be easy to perform jumping out of a chopper and, all right, I'm going to become the Hulk now. I've got to save the day. I was just given this 
kind of uh, antidote to get it out of me. And now I'm just going to conjure it up again. Uh, you know, th there's uh, a much ballyhooed point. You know, are we only solving that instance of uh, hulking out or are we curing it? And what was done, and it winds up, it, it seems to have been, at least from the evidence that we have, just that instance because he's able to perform and become the monster again. You know what, Pete? I wanna I wanna take the two arguments and put them together in in more of a serious manner than we had initially suggested the bit about Doctor Sanders. Is it? Mm -hmm. What if the entire what if the entire movie is a metaphor for homosexuality? That he's told this is the wrong way to be, and indeed someone offers him a cure. However, and then the whole discussion is: is this a long lasting cure or not? Uh, can therapy help? Can chemicals help? And then ultimately, what must he determine at the very end of the movie? He is who he is, and it's okay. Well, thank goodness our good governor in the state of New Jersey just outlawed conversion therapy. Is Chris Christie, who, uh, despite uh, differing political views at the podcast table, I think we can both agree is going to be easily win re-election, is Chris Christie... Um, General, uh, General, uh, uh, Ross. Or is he the Hulk? Or is he the Hulk? Uh, or, he... The, or the Abomination. <laughs> wow. See, you, see, this movie is getting better and better, Pete, because the ultimate, uh, test of any art, written, musical, narrative, etc., is can you apply it to your world today? Can you apply it to, not, not just the world today, can you apply it to your world, the things you are going through? I think that, Pete, we've talked uh, national sports and steroids. We've talked homosexuality. We've talked politics. That, that 2008's The Incredible Hulk can be uh, genuinely brought into the, the discussion of those. I think it just speaks to how this movie is... While not great, uh, it is it is quite good, and there's uh, a lot of fertile ground to go there. Well, let's transition here and taking a look at some decrypted transmissions, the part of the podcast where we ordinarily look at mail and any other correspondence we've received. So, Matt, we well, this isn't. This wasn't exactly correspondence to us, but I did want to share that uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were able to participate in uh, a couple of live blogs that uh, that Marvel.com did. One was at um, D23, and the other one is escaping my memory. I believe it was the oh, it was the the press conference for the uh, or it was a press conference surrounding Agents of Shield, and. In both cases, they are moderated by uh, Agent M, uh, who uh, runs the web stuff for Marvel. He's Agent M on Twitter. And um, both were extremely well run. Both were, um, both were done in such a way, and rightfully so, where you could ask a question, but it didn't necessarily pop up. It wasn't chat room style, but questions could be curated. And Pete, I just want to share with you, Agent M was so kind as to uh, allow my one of my questions to get through and, uh, you know, therefore to get shared with the group, and he kind of um, addressed it as best he could. I had asked a question, um, which we had actually touched on last week, will, how much crossover will there be with the Marvel movie universe in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Uh, I kind of made an argument and said, as I did last week, um... They can't go crazy with that, otherwise it's going to become the Marvel movie TV show. Oh, this week we just have the TV show. Um, I, his exact response is not in front of me, but I believe it was something like, you know, very interesting, dot, 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 dot. Almost suggesting that he might have heard whispers of this plan or that plan to have um, more than the most casual reference to... Uh, you know, oh, that business in New York last year, referring to the Avengers movie or that kind of thing. So definitely uh, I would encourage everybody, hop on that decrypted transmission the next time Marvel.com does a chat. Uh, Agent M did a fantastic job uh, curating it, letting many, many questions go through. And um, they're just, 
they're, they're, it was super fun. It was great fan interaction, which is what we're all here for. How can people interact with us? The best way to interact with us is by sending a tweet to Fantastic Geek. That's fantastic with a PH. You also can send an email to fantasticgeek at gmail.com or leave a comment on the webpage, fantasticgeek.com. And uh, that would be a great way for people to, uh, to share their thoughts as we get closer and closer to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Individually, you can find us on Twitter. I can be found at Peter J. Cadelar, P-I-E-T-E-R, J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R. Matt? I, individually, am looking back lost. It's spelled the way it sounds. So there you go. And Pete, I'll mention one last thing for people who have found this podcast separate from some of our other stuff. If you head over to the PH Geek podcast page, phgeekpodcast.blogspot.com, or search iTunes for the PH Geek Pop Culture Podcast, we simulcast this podcast as well as uh, some of our other adventures going to Comic Cons. Uh, we kind of have a smaller scale parallel uh, Star Trek podcast that's happening. So that's kind of a the, the PH Geek Pop Culture Podcast is kind of a catch-all for whether it's, you know, breaking nerd news or, or uh, celebrities that we've run into at Comic-Cons or that sort of thing. It's kind of a catch-all basket of fun. So, Pete, with that, I think we've covered every last thing that we want to about the Incredible Hulk movie. What is next on the MCU list? What will we be talking about soon? We're going to be taking a look at uh, a crime against uh, cinema, also known as Iron Man 2. Harsh criticism, but I think uh, probably well-deserved. So, with that, everybody, I, I guess maybe one more last little factoid. These episodes are releasing Tuesday night, which is uh, also, of course, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. will be airing on Tuesday nights. And it's our hope to be getting the podcast out uh, shortly after the episode itself airs, we'll have a we'll have a discussion and get it out there soon. So we hope to kind of be your your breaking news Agents of Shield podcast amongst the uh, the family of Agents of Shield podcasts. So with that, Pete, I will say adios to one and all, and let you uh, deliver for us your famous uh, rotating parting line of the week. Hulk smash.